It might feel like only yesterday. It might feel like a lifetime ago. But this month marks four years since the general election of 2019, where Boris Johnson clinched a Conservative majority with his promise to get Brexit done. And Labour achieved its worst election result since 1935. Actually, now I come to think of it, that does feel more like a lifetime ago than yesterday. A heck of a lot has changed since then, not least the leaders of both parties and in the Conservatives' case a couple of times. We've had a global pandemic, cost of living crisis, a couple of wars near Europe's borders, a new Labour leader, two new Conservative Prime Ministers, a dramatic shift in the standing of the parties. As we record this, Labour is ahead of the Conservatives by about 20 points in the opinion polls. And the most extraordinary thing is they've maintained that lead for getting on for two years now. So where does that leave us with at most just over a year till the next election? Something extraordinary is going to happen. Either we get a Labour victory from a long way back at the last election, a huge turnaround since the last election, or we don't get a Labour victory, in which case the polls will have collapsed, changed dramatically within the next 12 months. So given that, are the Conservatives resigned to electoral defeat? Will Keir Starmer get the keys to number 10? What are the voters' actual priorities likely to be as they head to the polls rather than whatever the politicians tell us they'd like them to be? And will this be the first non-Brexit election we've had in almost a decade? I'm Hannah White, Director of the Institute for Government. I'm Arnon Menon, Director of UK in a Changing Europe. And I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And this is The Expert Factor. Paul, if you don't mind, I'm just going to butt in at this point. And before we get on to the meat of this episode, we've just heard in the last day or so about the sad passing of Alistair Darling. And I just wondered if you wanted to just spend a minute sort of sharing your reflections on him as Chancellor and particularly on his role following the 2008 crisis. He wrote a remarkable book about it, which I recommend to all our listeners for starters. Yeah, it was a terribly sad and actually particularly sad because I met him um, over Zoom, at least, probably only a month or so ago and have been in numerous meetings with him recently because of a role he, he, he has had chairing one of our advisory groups here for some work we're doing on pensions. I mean, he has remained, or well, he did remain very interested in public policy, economic policy, right up to the end, really. But yes, I mean, he, of course, took over uh, as Chancellor after Gordon Brown became Prime Minister. And at a point when it looked like the economy was doing pretty well, it had been doing pretty well for a long period of time. But very soon after he became Chancellor, we had the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. He, I think, actually um, recognised that relatively early. I remember a, a big interview he he did before I think this had really hit most people's consciousness in which he'd indicated how concerned he was about what was happening in the financial system. And then he was, I think, instrumental alongside Gordon Brown as Prime Minister in not just bailing out the banks in the UK, but helping to coordinate an international response to what, of course, was an international financial crisis. And whilst obviously a very different personality to um, to, to Gordon Brown, the two of them, uh, I think, dealt with that 
crisis, I think pretty much as well as you could have hoped people in that almost impossible position would have done. Yes, it's a sad day. I want to sort of add the slightly cheeky remark that you wouldn't envy a man who had to replace Gordon Brown as Chancellor while Gordon Brown moved into number 10. That would have been quite a challenge. Absolutely. And um, despite the fact that he was obviously Gordon's number one choice for, for that role, as often happens in that relationship, I think it became strained really quite quickly. Gordon, of course, was known as someone who got into the details of things, was keen to micromanage things. And of course, having been at the Treasury for a decade before that, would have known the Treasury better than Alistair did. Yeah, indeed. Thanks for raising that, uh, Anna. And it, it, it has been very sad hearing about Alistair's death. As I said, someone that you know, I knew in the Treasury and knew more since. So personal sadness there as well. But let's get on with the rest of the podcast. Okay, so Anand, let's start with the Conservatives. It's not looking good for them at the moment. A very long way behind in the polls. Lots of evidence of splits and disagreements within them. Is there anything that they can do in the next year to turn things around? Well, I think the simple answer is it's a very, very uphill struggle. But the the short answer, I suppose, insofar as there is one, is deliver in practical terms. Because I think competence and the ability to actually deliver things for real voters is absolutely key to this election. And one of the problems the Conservatives have is that they've lost their reputation for competence and people are struggling, as you know all too well, Paul, with a cost of living crisis, with the prospect of mortgages going up and things like that. And I think the two things to say, I mean, firstly, the economy is the central issue. But secondly, when it comes to some of the other pledges that Rishi Sunak's made, like, for instance, stopping the boats, it would be better if he looked like he was going to deliver on that than if he didn't. Yeah, and of course he's made his um, his various pledges, of which stopping the boats is one, and um, getting the economy growing, halving inflation, um, sorting out uh, public services are others, which are rather less definite. I mean, how, how, how important are those sorts of pledges and uh, measurement against them to the electorate, and how much do they actually drive? I mean, the Prime Minister having said those things, how much have they actually driven the way that government has behaved? Well, I think Rishi Sunak's defined those five pledges he made in January 2023 as things he wanted to be judged against by the electorate. Whether the public themselves take him up on that, I think, is more in doubt. Those were things that he said, by the end of the first year, I want the public to be able to see that I've delivered. And at the time, they were widely seen as relatively low ambition. In terms of actually how it's worked out, that's not proven to be the case. And I think it's interesting, the question you asked, Paul, about you know how much has this affected the energies within government? It has. But then, of course, on some of these pledges, there aren't things that it's really that easy for the government itself to affect. So actually, what's happened to the rate of inflation, for example, that's a pledge that the government has managed to meet, but not necessarily through anything it's done, just because that is what's happened the inflation rate. So I think there's been a big focus in the Home Office on the, on the small boats issue, both in terms of passing legislation and trying to get the Rwanda scheme off the ground. There has been a reduction in the backlog there of, of asylum cases, which I think the Home Office would see as quite a, a, a big win. But whether that's perceptible to the public and whether it's indeed what the public actually cares about, I think is a bigger question. And as Anand was saying, I think cost of living crisis is possibly much more front and centre of people's minds. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult for, for us sitting here really to imagine 
what is at the forefront of people's concerns and whether getting a, uh, you know, a few people on flights to Rwanda really would make any big difference, given you know one of the things that we saw in the autumn statement not so long ago was the Office of Budget Responsibility saying this effectively be the first parliament pretty much in history in which people go to the polls at the end of the parliament worse off on average than they were at the beginning of the parliament. I mean, that's not the sort of background which is going to be helpful for any government. I think that's right. And I think the government has put a a big emphasis on on immigration, particularly illegal immigration. And now with the latest statistics we've just seen about the high, unprecedentedly high rate of legal migration, they've been trying to frame that as a narrative. And I think it's quite clear that that is an issue they would like to be high profile in the election campaign, which they think that they can draw dividing lines with Labour on. But actually, as you say, the reality of what people are taking home in their pay packet and what that means to their standard of living is much more real to people. Although it is true that immigration is is sort of going up the list of concerns that voters have and the government's had some success in framing that as a problem and, and generating that. Actually, I think on an individual basis, it is going to be hard to get away from the cost of living concerns. Presumably, Anna, and this is just all pushing into a general sense in the country that people are feeling rather anti-conservative. They're not feeling well off. We've had all of the chaos around Boris Johnson, all of the chaos around Liz Truss. We've got uh, you know a, a less chaotic prime minister, but one who doesn't seem to be cutting through. Is there a deep anti-conservative feeling in the country or you know let's not forget it's only four years since the conservatives won their biggest majority in 30 years or so i mean is your sense that they've already blown it or are voters so mobile and fickle at the moment that uh, the depth of anti-conservative feeling which is leading to this big reduction in the polls is something that is um which can, can be pulled back because people are you know, happy to move. And I saw some statistic recently, some astonishing fraction of people will have changed their vote since 2017, 2019, and what they think now. Some very large fraction of people have, have changed their minds. That last point is certainly true. We're living in an age of unparalleled volatility. And I think one of the figures that struck in my mind, I think from the BES, was that between 2010 and 2017, 49% of us changed the party we voted for. We've never seen volatility like that. And, you know, there's a big political science literature on the fact that people are disengaging from parties, that those sort of traditional party loyalties are a thing of the past. So you'd never say never about a future election just because things are so unpredictable. That being said, the figures for the Conservatives really are dire. I think eight in 10 voters think the government has handled the economy badly. Just over 20% of voters think the Conservatives are the best party on the economy this month when polled. So the reputation of the Conservatives for economic management, the reputation of the Conservatives for being a competent party, and crucially, the Prime Minister's own personal ratings are very, very low indeed. So in that sense, it's going to be very, very hard for them to turn this round. You know, one of the things about Sunak is he's certainly a marks a difference from particularly Boris Johnson and and also Liz Truss. But he's not massively popular nonetheless. What the Conservatives hoped for in changing leader was a poll bounce for their leader, if not their brand. And, you know, initially when Rishi Sunak was elected, if you remember, Conservatives were talking about the party pulling itself up in the pollings on Rishi Sunak's bootstraps. The thing is that he's sunk to a pretty low level as well now. So 
it really, really is a mountain that the Tories have to climb. But if you look at it from Labour's side, actually, Keir Starmer is only really doing well by comparison mm-hmm. to Sunak. I mean, the, one of the most recent polls I could find said has Starmer on minus 22% satisfaction and Sunak on minus 44%. Okay, so he's doing better than Sunak, but he's not. that's not a massive well of support for him as leader. And if you look at, back at someone like Blair, I mean, I think he was rarely, if ever, in negative territory in terms of leadership approval when he was in opposition. So, I think there is something in what you're saying, Paul, about, you know, there might be a a negative feeling in the country about the Conservatives. There's not necessarily a massively positive feeling towards Labour. And so potentially there is still scope for the the Conservatives to turn things around. Time is short and you can't quite see how they do it. But it's, it's not that they're up against a wildly popular opposition at the moment. I think you're dead right, Hannah. There is no great overwhelming enthusiasm for Keir Starmer. I mean, Amongst all the interesting polling, if you look at the polling amongst those sort of red wall seats, what you find is that the people who are deserting, the 2019 Tory voters who are deserting the party tend to be deserting towards won't vote or reform. They're not, they're not, they're not heading in their droves towards Labour. And, you know, large proportions of the electorate don't really know what Keir Starmer stands for. There are high polling numbers if you ask them, if, if people who don't really think there's a difference between him and Rishi Sunak. Labour aren't inspiring the electorate. That's absolutely true. Though I would say that being more popular than your opposite number can sometimes be enough. If you think back to 2019, you know, one of the most striking things about the 2019 election was, I think the the British election study found that at no point during the 2019 election campaign was Boris Johnson as popular as Theresa May had been at the equivalent point of the 2017 election campaign. But Jeremy Corbyn had tanked. So actually, Boris Johnson didn't need to be more popular than Theresa May had been. He just needed to be more popular than, than Jeremy Corbyn, who happened to be very unpopular. And this, this feels a bit like that to me. Yeah, it's, uh, and I, I think <laughs> it's a very important point for remembering back to what happened in 2019. It was, uh, it was at least as much a, a loss for Corbyn and Labour as it was a win for Johnson and the Conservatives because it was, a, it was a contest of unpopularity and we may have a contest of unpopularity the other way around this time. I mean, what, what's your sense, Hannah, of Labour's strategy, which appears to be one at the moment of being extremely cautious about drawing, particularly on the economy and on spending and on tax, any significant dividing line with the Conservatives, no doubt because they don't want to be attacked as the high spending, high tax, economically unreasonable or illiterate party, but knowing, um, as we all know, that the challenges over the next five years are going to be incredibly difficult given the state of the public finances, the level of debt interest spending, the fact we're starting off from very, very high levels of tax and uh, a a very difficult inheritance, which I have to say, I do have a little bit of sympathy with the current government in the sense that not much of what's happening at the moment is the fault of Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt, maybe the fault uh, to some extent of what their predecessors have done over previous years. But trying to discern something different from Labour at the moment is quite difficult. 
I think that's absolutely right. And it was really noticeable, wasn't it, after the autumn statement that uh, Rachel Reeves really didn't want to demur from anything that, that Jeremy Hunt really was proposing. And there's just this real focus on not creating any dividing line for which Labour could be attacked as being imprudent. There's a real safety first approach on the money. And yes, you know, partly that's driven by the economic situation where, you know, it, there's not a pot of money in a political debate about how to spend it. There's just this concern both about the state of public services, but also about the tax burden at the same time. So I think that's what leaves Labour in this situation where they don't want to create any attack lines for the Conservatives, but the conundrum that creates for them is they can't then create a positive alternative vision for what Labour would do economically, because that's just not open to them. I want to ask both of you, actually. I mean, do you think that what's going on here is that Labour actually have got a fairly clear idea of some things that they will do that they're not telling us about? Or do you actually think that at the moment they don't have anything very different from what the, uh, from what the government's doing? So this is the sort of Baldrick school of opposition that they've got a cunning plan that they'll, <laughs> they'll whip out the day after they win the election. I fear not. You fear they're not even as good as Baldrick. <laughs> well, my sense, is, my sense is they think about the things they need to think about to win the election. They're not necessarily that focused on the things they'll need to do having won the election. And I'd say a couple of things on that. I think One is it's all very well playing it safe to win the election, but to have legitimacy in government to do stuff, you probably need to have hinted at it before you come in. So I think that actually there is this question that Labour at some point need to start rolling the pitch for being in power and preparing people for the sorts of things they're going to have to do. Because, you know, you make the point over and over again, Paul, that actually at some point the reality of our fiscal situation is going to hit someone and the reality of the need for greater taxes to fund public services is going to hit someone. And you sort of wonder whether... Labour at any point before the election are going to start talking about that. The second thing which is more hopeful for Labour, I think, is this crucial issue of economic credibility. And it seems to me, and I'd be interested what you both think on this, that you don't so much gain economic credibility as your opponents lose it. So the Tories lost it on Black Wednesday and got it back when Labour lost it in 2008. And it seems to me that the Tories have had it since then, but lost it with the mini budget. And if history provides a, a roadmap, they're not going to get it back again until Labour face a similar sort of problem, until Labour lose there. So in that sense, at least, Labour at the moment are seen by the public as more credible, though not massively so, on the economy than the Tories. And that is very, very important as you head towards an election. I mean, I think I'm with you, Anand, in that I don't think there is actually a cunning plan. The cunning plan that exists is real tight grip on the purse strings from Rachel Reeves. And so what the shadow team are really focused on is finding all those magical cost-saving and cost-free ways of achieving the things that they want to do, you know, thinking about whether there are sort of structural process, constitutional things that they can say they can do that might shift the dial. But the difficulty for them is that particularly in terms of public service reform, that there aren't, you know, lots of these clever wheezes have been tried and there is very little you can do which is actually going to shift the dial without quite significant investments. So, those are the things where you know we haven't seen really any indication from from labor those are the things where you know there there may be some things which emerge but as you say Anne, and without having had those things in your manifesto and a public vote to endorse them and give them legitimacy it does make it that bit harder once you're in government to push those sorts of things through when they will involve really difficult trade-offs 
between the things you're going to cut in order to spend in other areas. I mean, the one obvious exception where I think Labour have said some interesting things is when it comes to planning. You know, the Labour approach to saying we're going to build and we're going to override the blockers. I think there, there is some potential for growth. And actually, even though it will require some public investment, it is an opportunity, I think, to address some of the economic ills that we faced over the last decade or so. We need more houses built. We need more infrastructure built. There's loads going on in the world. There are some things which seem to have become much more salient over time. Net zero, obviously, gender identity and some of the identity politics, something that uh, I think conservatives wanting to play on. Perhaps there's more concern about inequality and actually some things which have become much less salient over the, certainly since the last election, particularly about Brexit. No one seems to be talking about Brexit. It's the biggest thing that's happened to the country in decades. Where do you think we're going to be in terms of talking about these issues at the next election? And I mean, are, are, which way are the parties going to use or avoid looking at these issues? Well, I think you're right, Paul. It's really interesting which of these issues have sort of come to the fore and which have, have died away. And Brexit certainly is one where neither party seemed to want to talk about it very much at all. That started to shift just recently. I mean, I think we saw in Prime Minister's questions this week, the Prime Minister take Keir Starmer to task for having answered a question about the, the tune which most uh, represented Labour being owed to joy and seeing that as a sign of his support for the European project and sort of trying to draw a dividing line there between the parties on Brexit. But really, both parties basically perceived risk in terms of the voters they might not attract or retain if they start to seriously set out an alternative pitch on Brexit. Some of the other issues, I mean, I think some of them, the, you, you mentioned the sort of gender identity woke type issues. I think for the Conservative Party, highlighting those is about getting certain voters out to the ballot box to support their party. They're not necessarily things where you're going to sort of pull voters in from other parties, but you might get your voters out more strongly, the ones who already agree with you in, in that, that space. And net zero has been an interesting one. I would have said, you know, a year ago that probably net zero was going to be relatively low priority as a political dividing line in this election. But actually, with the Prime Minister's announcements about sort of dialing back on some of the speed with which we might meet some of our commitments in the net zero space, there is a question there. And with Labour's commitment to spend slightly less than they were saying, but still quite a large chunk of money in terms of investing in a green economy, that is something which now looks like something which is more of a dividing line. Hannah, what about the Lib Dems? Why aren't they making more of um, their anti-Brexit stance at the moment? I think, quite frankly, they are quite scarred by what happened to them ahead of the 2019 election and the voters they think they lost at that point. And they've taken a really, they are taking a really pragmatic approach to this election. It's not about the big picture narrative. I think it's very much about winning in individual seats. And actually, that may be about having slightly differentiated narratives about what's locally important in different seats where they think they can win. So I think sort of stepping out, uh, sticking their necks out and making making a big deal about the having a sort of pro-EU stance might potentially count against them in some of those seats that they think they need to win. Interesting. It's uh, We've got getting huge caution from both Labour and the Liberal Democrats. And to some extent, it looks like it's the Conservatives who are the ones desperately trying to create the dividing lines, whilst the two opposition parties are sort of desperately trying not to say anything. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. 
Paul, and I think you're right for the for the reason that well, I mean, what Boris Johnson did in 2019 was he essentially created a coalition of Leave voters, uh, and that coalition of Leave voters is united not just by Brexit but by things like immigration, by things like uh, the debate over trans rights, and so to hold that together. You can see why Rishi Sunak is desperately trying to sort of activate these issues. If you wanted to be very cynical, which I'm sure neither of us would want to be, you could look at the recent spat with the Greek prime minister through that kind of lens, that this is to hold together a a coalition that is relatively robust on values issues, but incredibly fragile when it comes to the economy. And in that sense, the Conservatives have been very unlucky. You, You spend all this time and effort putting together a values coalition that is fragile on economics, and you immediately get lumbered with covid and a cost of living crisis, which are the worst political issues you could have, given your electoral situation. So Sunak will try. I mean, he will try and improve the state of the economy, obviously, but at the same time, try and hold what is a very divided electorate on the conservative side together with reference to things like the small boats, I think. So you can see what he's trying to do. I'm just not very confident at the moment that he's going to be able to succeed. And whilst immigration is a very salient issue to people who are definitely going to vote conservative anyway, he's not going to get many other people interested in that at a time when they're worried about their bills and feeding their kids. And, and that's, that's interesting. That, I mean, because both parties, both big parties have got sort of di- divided coalitions of voters, haven't they, in a sense? Mm-hmm. So for the Conservatives, you had what one thinks of as the sort of red wall voters who might have been particularly concerned about Brexit and maybe particularly about some of these identity issues. But then you've got the sort of traditional Conservative heartlands, which they think are now called the blue wall, which the Lib Dems are trying to knock down, but Labour is as well, which um, are in much wealthier areas on the whole than, than, than the Red Wall, and with a rather different type of voters. You've got on the Conservative side, on the Labour side, you know, I've heard people talk particularly within the Labour Party that there's almost no, or, or almost nothing that unites sort of Islington Labour Party with Liverpool Labour Party in terms of the sorts of things that they spend their time considering, or indeed the, 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 the sort of bulk of the voters for Labour uh, in different parts of the country. I mean, can this be stable? I mean, it, it doesn't feel like stable coalitions within the parties, or is this just always been the case in terms of the party's electoral bases? I think to an extent it's always been the case. I mean, first past the post means you have to have a broad church. You know, if you're going to succeed in our electoral system, you need to bring together bunches of people who under a proportional system would, would vote for different parties. That's always been the nature of the game. What I would say about the Labour Party, though, is whilst you're absolutely right that there is a big difference between your Islington and your Liverpool voter in many, many ways, they tend to agree on the need for more generous welfare, slightly higher tax burden, greater redistribution, better funding of public services and things like that. So Labour are less vulnerable, I think, on the economics. I'm not for a moment saying that they're wholly united on this. You know, what we were saying about Rachel Reeves earlier, I think, if in power she will face significant pushback from backbenchers wanting her to spend more. But I think Labour are more comfortable and less divided on these economic issues than are the Conservatives. So in that sense, during a cost of living crisis, they have something of an advantage. Though you're right, we're dealing with two very broad and rather unwieldy coalitions here. And at a time of unparalleled volatility, that makes elections very, very hard to read. And I guess it also makes it hard to know what the makeup of the parties in Parliament will be post the next election. If, if the Conservatives, for example suffer the sort of hit they did in 1997 when I think they went down to something like 150 seats or actually quite a lot fewer seats even than Labour have 
now. Do we have any sense as as to whether you know, that that will change the balance of power in the Parliamentary Conservative Party towards One Nation or towards sort of Trussites or towards Braverman's wing of the party? And similarly for for, for Labour, one senses that they're making a, a a big attempt to ensure a fairly moderate, in some sense, intake, but probably got limited real sense as to what you know, what two hundred new MPs might actually, I mean, maybe that's at the top end of uh, possibilities, but what are you, a very large number of completely new MPs, probably lots of uncertainty about where they will actually settle in terms of their their voting and their, um, their, their views on a lot of these issues. No, absolutely. I mean, I'd say several things. Starting with Labour, they at least have a significant amount of time to vet candidates, which of course was a massive problem for the parties with the 2017 snap election is, you know, you had no time to sort of check your candidates carefully because you've been completely taken by surprise. On both sides, actually, the Tories were taken by surprise too by Mrs May's decision to call a snap election. And the signs are, and you see this in the sort of irritation expressed by some constituency Labour parties that Labour central office is trying to ensure, in inverted commas, safe candidates. Now, what that means for Parliament, what that means in terms of getting the right people to legislate and so on, we'll leave that to one side. But you're right, with with the prospect of so many new MPs, we are a little bit uncertain about who they are and what they're going to stand for and how they will behave in Parliament, which you only really know once they've been elected. On the Tory side, I'm going to swerve this slightly by saying we we have to wait a little bit to have any clear idea about this, to get some idea about what the new constituencies and the constituency boundaries mean. It's very difficult anyway, because to know who's going to lose their seat and who isn't. So there's that level of unpredictability. And with boundary changes, there's another level of unpredictability as well. So saying whether it's the One Nation group or the Trussite group that come out stronger is very, very hard to do. I think that is right, Anna, and we can't predict too much. Although a lot of the MPs I've spoken to do seem to have got some fairly granular analysis of how they expect their uh, constituencies to change and what that means for their vote share. I was talking to a prospective parliamentary candidate for the Conservatives the other day, and he was saying that the worse the result for the Conservatives, the analysis that he's looked at says the more right-wing the MPs left in Parliament will be. The safest seats are those who are some of the most right-wing MPs and and he was sort of speculating on what that would mean for a potential leadership election. But I mean, it it remains the case that on current polling and with our current understanding of what the constituencies will be, there are some potential sort of big names which, if they don't decide to leave ahead of the next election, which some of them have already said they will, you know, Jeremy Hunt's seat, Dominic Raab's seat. I mean, I think he said he's standing down anyway, but that he's got a very narrow majority. Alex Chalk, the current Justice Secretary, David Davies, Simon Hart, the Chief Whip, all of those would be looking at losing their seats on on current polling. The other element of the Conservative Party that I think is really important, because of course, if they end up in that situation, they're having a leadership election as well, is the membership. And here I think, you know, my sense is that you had a degree of entryism into the Conservative Party in 2019. Nigel Farage actively encouraged Brexit Party supporters to join the Tories so they could vote for Boris Johnson as party leader. And I think some of those people are still there. So, you know, whatever the parliamentary party ends up like, I suspect the membership will choose the right wing alternative. That's my sense of how the party operates. And that, of course, will be crucial because it will determine the identity of the new leader. 
Yeah, and of course that's broadly what the membership has done. Camp, David Cameron apart, every time the Tory membership has had that choice since sort of two thousand, I mean they have tended to go for the uh, the more right wing of the candidates put in front of them in in any case. And it's not just the Tories. I mean the Tories benefited from Labour having Jeremy Corbyn in twenty nineteen. And going back to and going back yeah, to your, yeah. your your previous question, one of the problems for the Conservatives in the Blue Wall is a lot of liberal conservatives, a lot of people who didn't really like Brexit, who are quite liberal on immigration, voted for Boris Johnson through gritted teeth because the alternative was Jeremy Corbyn. I think those people now feel a lot more empowered to vote Lib Dem. And they might never in their wildest dreams vote Labour, but they might vote Lib Dem knowing it will facilitate a Labour government because the prospect is nowhere near as scary as that mm. of Jeremy Corbyn. I think that goes back to our earlier discussion about Starmer might not be inspiring people, but he's not scaring people. And I think that really matters. Yeah, I think that is uh, that, that is very clearly a big difference between um, now where we are and where we were in 2019. But also, as you said, a big difference between now and 1997. I mean, Blair, whatever you think of him, he did inspire a big part of the mm. electorate in which, uh, in a way in which I don't think either of the uh, contenders this time round do. We've had so many scandals over the last few years. We've obviously had everything from the Downing Street parties to what appear to be constant breaking of the ministerial code. We've had the chaos of the mini-budget. We've had worries about MPs' behaviour, left, right and centre. We talk a lot about politics, but actually a voter's just more concerned with competence and basic decency than anything else. Well, I think at the height of the Partygate scandal, voters were uh, pretty concerned about standards in government. And you know, ultimately, Partygate, followed by the Chris Pinchot affair, is what brought Boris Johnson down because Conservative MPs concluded that Boris Johnson was no longer the election-winning asset that they had thought that he was. I think, though, that the sort of standards agenda in general has probably decreased in salience since Boris Johnson left. But what I do think, you, you mentioned there, Paul, the trust period of government. And I think that that really heightened consciousness in the population at large, that government has consequences for, for their real lives. You know, the politics that they might dismiss and think is boring on a daily basis. Actually, what Liz Truss did during her period in government changed the, the cost of their mortgages, really exacerbated the cost of living crisis. And so I do think there is now a sense that the public look at their politicians and think, you know, are these people competent to run the country in a way that isn't going to hit me in my pocket? And that's the connection which I think has been made in voters' minds. I think that's absolutely spot on about competence. I think the point worth stressing about Partygate, I mean, it'd be interesting to know if you agree with this, Hannah, is just, just how unique that set of circumstances was. I mean, people were literally not able to go to their the funerals of their nearest and dearest and heard these reports of parties. It was so viscerally unpleasant and galling for so many people that whilst I think, I think trust in politics is so low that very few people would even shrug their shoulders at the idea that an MP wasn't telling the truth. But in those particular circumstances, when the whole country was locked down, I think that had a cut through in a way that normal tales, if you like, of dishonesty in politics simply wouldn't. I think that's absolutely right. I think, you know, you'd have Westminster bubble scandals, but Partygate was something where everybody could imagine what they were doing on those nights, on those days when there were parties in Downing Street. And that really gave it a cut through, which we haven't seen with other ethical scandals. 
Uh, before we stop, we should probably talk about Scotland a little bit. Um, there's obviously been a very big change in Scottish politics in the last couple of years. The SNP uh, has been the dominant party there since the 2015 general election. But with Nicola Sturgeon standing down with some of the uh, problems engulfing the Scottish nationalists, it looks like they might lose quite a high chunk of their seats. And obviously that helps a Labour Party looking for a stable majority. Absolutely. I think Labour are just about neck and neck with the SNP in Scotland now, which holds out the prospect of significant gains. What I would say is a couple of things. Firstly, again, there's a long way to go. Hamza Youssef is relatively new in his role. And whilst he hasn't done particularly well to start with, we don't know how the next year will pan out. But what what seems to be happening in Scotland now is that the link between supporting independence and supporting the SNP has been broken. That's to say, the polling numbers in terms of of independence have remained relatively stable. The SNP has started declining in the polls. And what this means is that people who support independence either want to register a sort of protest against the SNP, so they're judging the SNP on its governing record, or they think that actually independence isn't really the crucial issue in the coming election, and so they're independence preference won't be the single most important determinant of their vote. So what that means is people who support independence might be willing to vote for a unionist party because, for instance, you might think, yeah, I'm pro-independence, but the priority in a general election is going to be to get the Tories out. So that's what's happening in Scotland. And I think, you know, Labour need to do well in Scotland in order to form a majority. And at the moment, the signs are pretty positive for them. Again, I would say, this isn't because Keir Starmer is setting the Scots alight with enthusiasm. It is because of the SNP's worries, I think, that this is happening. I totally agree with you, Anand. I think, you know, if independence isn't seen as a top priority issue at the election, then in my view, probably many voters will be voting based on who they want to see as prime minister uh, rather than according to those party affiliations we've seen in the past. And that can obviously only be good for Labour in Scotland. I mean, I think we've got to treat all the polls we're seeing at the moment with caution. They are throwing up some wildly divergent numbers and we all know the dangers of misinterpreting the outcomes of, of by-elections and, and, you know, Rutherglen was an enormous swing to Labour, but we mustn't assume that that's going to be repeated and a lot can happen, as you say, and, and so watch this space, I think. I mean, just worth making one point that Labour have a real electoral mountain to climb. So, for instance, I mean, the Tories can lose the the red wall and win the election. You know, they can sort of revert back to 2015. You can, you can see a path to power with the Conservatives, even if they don't hold the red wall. Labour have to win the red wall. They have to do pretty well in Scotland. And they have to figure out a way to win some other seats as well to come into power. So, for Labour... Whilst they are polling very, very well, we shouldn't lose from sight the fact that they really need to be in order just to squeak over the line. And in order to have a a sort of governing majority, which really makes them confident that they can deliver everything they want to, they need to do even better than that. We're obviously doing a lot of speculating here about what might happen in an election and the politics of all of this are always um, very interesting to us political, uh, those of us interested in politics uh, in a slightly nerdish kind of way. But what's really going to matter, of course, is what the next government does and i have to say i don't envy whoever (laughs) wins the next election as i said just now we are in a world where debt is at its highest level for generations taxes are at their highest level ever 
and yet there appears to be no money available for public services, which um, you know, Hannah and the IFG have done lots of work on, showing how badly they're struggling. Prisons are full. Just recently, following on from Birmingham, going bust. Uh, apparently, Nottingham has or is about to go bust. I mean, local government is absolutely crying out for cash. We've got waiting lists in the NHS uh, higher than they've been since the 1990s, and so on, and so on, and so on. If Labour do win a substantial majority, I suppose what worries me most is I just don't have a sense as to how they will start to deal with that. I mean, will they, because they feel they have to, actually find a way to really increase taxes substantially in order to deal with some of those public service issues? Will they, as actually Blair did in the late 1990s, keep to the very, very tight spending plans which are penciled in in order to really gain that credibility, but in a much more difficult situation at the moment? Do they have the ideas and the energy to create real reform in public services? Do they essentially just hope that the economy does a bit better. Yeah, I mean, well, you are a little ray of sunshine, aren't you, Paul? When <laughs> always, <laughs> always. I mean, I'd say a few things in, in, in response to that. I mean, firstly, absolutely, this isn't 1997, because actually the thing that helped Blair in 1997 was that Ken Clark bequeathed to him growth. So the, the outlook was a hell of a lot rosier back then than it was now, because I think from your rather depressing shopping list, you missed out incredibly anemic growth levels, which is crucial. Uh, Indeed. I think the key variable is going to be the scale of a Labour victory if they win. I think a Labour government that squeaks into power is going to behave very differently to a Labour government that comes in on the back of a massive majority. If you come in on the back of a massive majority, what you can credibly do is start thinking about two terms. Then you can actually plan and then you actually have the space to be a little bolder, I think, than if you're immediately worried about losing the next election. So the scale of a Labour victory, what the Tories do after such a Labour victory, I mean, if the Conservatives consume themselves in a civil war, for instance, that gives a Prime Minister Starmer more space. I hate to disappoint you. I don't think we're going to get that honest debate on tax that you keep crying out for. Well, uh, we'll do our best to encourage it. <laughs> <laughs> but it is very, very hard to see. I mean, as you say, it is a very, very difficult context in which to come into Downing Street. Labour will almost certainly benefit for a while at least, from being able to say, oh my God, the Tories left us with a total mess. Remember, Cameron got re-elected after the eye-watering austerity of 2010 to 2015, which halfway through that, I think a lot of people were saying, God, this is so tough, it's very hard to see it happening. So you can do it. They're going to have to be very careful, both with their messaging and with what they actually do. And as you say, they're going to have to come out with a story to explain the fact that they're raising taxes, even if at the moment they're saying that they won't. Anne and Hannah, what an interesting conversation and what a fascinating period in British politics. The speed of change is extraordinary. I started off introducing this edition by talking about was it did it does it feel like yesterday does it feel like a lifetime ago the 2019 election and concluding very quickly it feels like a lifetime ago so much has happened since then and of course we may well have we probably have another year to go before we actually reach the election but I think we're going to be speculating about it for most of the period between now and then we of course the three of us will be talking about all of these issues and more over the coming 
year. So thank you both for an extraordinarily rich conversation. Thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you next week.